Well, hey, and welcome to another episode of the Becoming Better podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, in today's episode, Jason, Josh, and I sit down and we discuss other scriptures that talk about generosity, where the idea of a tithe comes from, and we take a deep dive into our own financial accountability process here at Quad City. As always, if you do have any questions or comments from Sunday's message, I do hope that you join us at quadcity.church slash podcast, where you can submit your questions to be talked about right here on the show. And last but not least, if you are not yet registered for Advanced Commitment Night, which happens this Thursday, September 14th uh, at six o'clock at the Finley Toyota Center, please go ahead and register right now. Again, we talk a little bit in this episode about the purpose of the event, who should be there. Uh, Spoilers, you should be there. I I genuinely believe this is going to be a really uh, incredible, memorable, and encouraging night for all those who call Quad City their church and would hate for you to miss out. So I hope to see you there. For more details or to register, just go to quadcity.church slash events and click on Advanced Commitment Night, September 14th, doors open at 545. Well, without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, hey guys, good morning. Happy Monday. Morning, guys. We're doing it. Uh, hey, as we dive in, let's chat. I uh, figured a good banter topic this morning, or rather Jason figured a good banter topic this morning, uh, would be, have you ever been given a gift that was really honoring to you or a gift that um, you were, were really, really grateful to be given? It's your question. It is Jason. for sure. Um, well, probably had a few. One I got in my office right now that um, one of our former elders who had been a part of a an archaeological society of some sort um, several years ago gifted me a lamp from a clay lamp from the first century. So when you think about what Matthew 5 says, Jesus talks about, hey, you don't take a lamp and light it and put it under a bowl, but you put it on a stand. That type of lamp that he's describing there is this lamp that someone gave me. And so I have a a clay lamp in a little plastic... um, display unit in my office and that meant so much to me so it was obviously it's a really important piece it has significant meaning um think of one more that i have in my office uh last year i had a lady in our church who who paints who painted a picture specifically for me. And so again, it's in my office and it has a, uh, an open Bible and a candle with a flame and some glasses and, um, kind of looks like a, a bit of a medieval kind of setup like you would do for study. And, and she brought it to me and had framed it and shared it with me and pointed to all of the different pieces and parts. Uh, it's an allegorical painting and she helped me to see all the things and what they all mean in the painting. And again, that's just that's not something you just run to Hobby Lobby and pick up. I mean, it, it's it's very meaningful, very specific, and um, very honoring. So those are the types of gifts that I look at and say, "Man, that those mean something." That's really cool. Yeah, that is. Yeah, good job. Yeah. So when we. Uh, told our church in Shreveport we were leaving um you know we had the last Sunday together which um again so the population of our church was you know all 
homeless folks or low income. So they didn't have like monetary was not the thing to do, you know. So I have a picture that hangs in my house um, of the city of Shreveport. Um, and it kind of has a, a map outline of where our church was. And then in the frame are br- a bunch of personalized letters from people um, that they wrote to me. I'm just talking about our time there and what it meant and, you know, just the honor to be their pastor. So it hangs in my house and I see it all the time. And um, it's really cool. Then I have a cross on my uh, wall uh, in our office, too, in my office here. Uh, and on the back of it has the date that we planted. So that church started in Bossier and then we moved to downtown Shreveport. But it has that very first Sunday date on there. And it talks about uh, just uh, has a verse on the back just about going and reaching lost people. And so both of those, I see them wherever I am. And it reminds me of the call to, to go and reach people. So both really cool. The cross Dinah did not like. She thinks it was not really pretty. Like it's ugly. <laughs> oh, so man. yeah, it's really funny. But it's really sentimental. But it's super sentimental. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So that's why she let me bring it to the office. And then the tree. Shreveport- let you or made you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Shreveport picture is really cool. It's, it, again, you look at it and nobody's like, oh, Shreveport. What is it? They don't even know what it is. But like inside that glass is a letters from people yeah, who, cool. you know, who we did life with for a really long time. So really cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, mine's way more superficial than either of those. Uh, when I was 15 or maybe 16, um, my middle sister uh, gave me her car. Which, at, like, at that time, for me, was, like, I mean, everything. It was freedom and being able to go do stuff and do what I wanted to do and that sort of thing. But looking back on it, it was, um, it was like, a 1993 Hyundai Elantra with, like, 200,000 miles on it. Like, really old, beat-up car. It was awesome. But, like, it meant, meant the world uh, to me. And I just look back now at, like, all of the funny high school memories, the stuff that me and my friends would go do and that sort of thing. And it was like always me driving because I was the one with a vehicle. And I, so for me, it was a really, really important gift that uh, meant a ton to me until I uh, uh, ran into a side barrier on a freeway one time with it and totaled it. So, but for those two years, man, that was, <laughs> nice. that gift meant everything. So oh, that's, that's cool. Uh, obviously a little bit of a carryover from our message uh, this past Sunday on this idea of gifts that are honoring, right? Gifts that probably none of us really expected to get, um, but but were um, huge blessings to us. Uh, this past week, we were in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 6 through 11. We stopped around 11, and then we yep. went into the Exodus text and just the, the powerful picture um, of Moses and the Israelites building the tabernacle and um, want to just kick things off with, man, what stood out to you guys as we were prepping for this past weekend? I was telling Brendan, just because, you know, we are so far ahead on some of these messages. I, I got, I guess, apparently a couple of them mixed up in my mind. I was like, oh, I didn't think we we're talking about that yet. There's a whole piece that I know that's coming this week. So be ready for it. I don't want to give it away. Spoilers. But um, I kept going. Is it already? We're already talking about that? I was like, no, no, wait a minute. This is the Exodus one. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. This is the... Yeah. Which, again, was such a great picture. And when you talk about just the heart of it, of course they would do that. It makes the most sense that those... That the people of God who had literally seen God in a pillar and in a cloud and in fire, you know, that they would... They would want to give to that. They would want to give God a a permanent home in a way, um, right? To be with them, to be with them forever. Like, why would you not? <laughs> hey, I want to be with you. What do we need to do? Like, can I? And then again, how much more should we? Yeah. Because how much more have we been saved through? That's why, again, I, the picture of the Exodus. If you don't know that story, you have to read it because it is the story that makes the most sense for what God has done for us and how He rescued and how He saved us, and then the. The, the law he's given, he's written on our hearts now and the spirit that now lives inside of us and how he's gone before us and that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, the lamb, the pat, like the story of the Exodus is our story. Like it's the new Exodus with Christ. And so if you were reading or if you heard Jason mention it and you're like, I really don't know what the Exodus story, you should read it. 
You yeah. should really, like, it's a big deal. Yeah, dig in. <laughs> yeah, dig in and study it. It is such an incredible um, story all the way out through. And then the Corinthians passage, just talking about um, being a cheerful giver, I, I really did speak to me just like that motive. Um, and I think all of us uh, maybe have had times we're not nearly as excited to give, um, but we should be. Yeah. Um, but I loved how you said, like week one of our podcast, you talked about you still think you should do it even if it's out of obligation because eventually your heart will get there. Right. I think we do become more cheerful and more. I was talking with somebody this past week about that. I was asking them how they're doing with all this, and they said, well, you know, right now I feel like I give because I know I'm supposed to give. I don't know how much my heart loves it, but I do it, and I'm grateful to do it. And I'm like, yeah, just keep doing it. I think you grow into this cheerful aspect of it. So, yeah, that was the the um, Exodus parallels building the ta- tabernacle. That was the thing that for sure was most impactful for me this past uh, this past Sunday, specifically the idea. Right, Josh, to your point, like how much more should we not only because we have seen the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus and uh, and what it means for us today. But right. The Israelites were building this tabernacle so that God could dwell near to them right? And how much more should we be willing to do that, having a God who sent his son, Jesus, to the cross for us, but then ascended so that another, better than him, in Jesus' words, could dwell in us. Like, not just near us, but but actually we have this gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells in each and every one of us. How much more should we be willing to give so others could experience that in our area in the future. Um, so that was the, it, it was a really, really uh, intriguing parallel of the story of the Israelites and how, how uh, generous and how willing they were to bring everything that they had of, of monetary value, their possessions so that other, so that they could experience God dwelling near them. And again, the parallel for us is, man, we can do that same thing so that other people can experience God dwelling in them. Um, and the spirit of God dwelling in them. So, uh, yeah, very cool parallel there. Jason, what about you? Uh, so for me, I think coming back to verse seven, where it says, so chapter nine, verse seven, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Again, I just as I was studying that, just thinking through um, that in this moment, Paul removes the formulaic idea of what giving is. Like he doesn't give us an amount and he doesn't give us a percentage. He has this expectation that this is going to have to be done with some heart work. You have to decide. There's going to have to be something that you're doing in your heart, that God's doing in your heart that's going to help you get to the amount, that's going to help you to get to the number of what generosity looks like. Because again, you can't you can't just figure that out through a formula. It's, there, there's no arithmetic that gets you there. It is the work of the Spirit in the heart of every one of us that is going to help us to determine what generosity looks like for us. So um, I think sometimes we're just looking for a formula, and and he doesn't give us that. So there's heart work. We got to we got to sit down and figure this out. So that was a a big takeaway for me from this text. Yeah. That's really good. Um, really quick before we dig in, we got a couple of questions from Sunday that I'm excited to get to. But uh, before that, let's talk a little bit about anything that we didn't get to in this text and mainly all of verse nine. Yeah. <laughs> we jumped past it. It's a quote uh, that uh, Paul uses in that text. So Jason, go ahead and read verse nine for us. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. Uh, here, since we didn't quite have time for that on Sunday. Sure. So here's... To, here's the reason we didn't get to it is um, when you read verse 8 and 10, you get the gist of what verse 9 is saying. Um, and again, you guys were on me a little bit. We we thought the time of our message was going to be <laughs> too long anyway. And so we did pass over because to give verse 9 its due, we would actually have to go back. And it is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 112. And so for us to have the time to do this justice in a message, we'd have to go back there and kind of set the context for it there. But let me just um, read verses 8 through 10, and then we'll come back and, and talk about verse 9. 
It says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. So this is an example of what he has just described. Uh, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. So this is a picture of, of of some people who had done what Paul's inviting this church in Corinth to do, to generously give to help those who are in need. So this is a an example of some people who have done that. Verse 10, and now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So again, this verse 9 does help connect a couple of things from verse 8 and verse 10. And in verse 8, it is God's able to bless you. You'll have everything you need to abound in every good work. An example of that was freely scattering gifts to the poor. So you will abound. You will have the assets to be able to do that. And then what's going to happen out of that? Verse 10, he who supplies the seed for the sower, bread for the soup, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will increase your harvest of righteousness. So again, back to verse 9, it says, when they freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endured forever. So verse 8 and 10 are a reflection of what he's trying to illustrate with verse 9, that when you give generously, and in Paul's case, he was taking up this offering and giving it to the believers in Jerusalem who were hurting. In in, uh, Psalm 112, it was talking about some people who were giving to the poor to help them. He says, when you are generous, it, it doesn't just help those who are poor. It's not just about that. In both of these instances, it raises the level of the righteousness of the givers. And so, again, that was the big takeaway for us, that our generosity is actually an investment. There's a return for it that when we give generously, our righteousness increases. Like there is a return on it. The harvest, as verse 10 says, that will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So our generosity does that. So um, we did skip it in, in the text simply because of time and because I felt like the message, we could get the same message from verses 8 and 10. It's teaching us the same thing, um, that generosity doesn't just help those that we're giving to. It's actually an investment back that it enlarges our own righteousness. So that was the point of the text and didn't think we had time to jump back into Psalm to try to work that out. No, that makes perfect sense. And it also reemphasizes kind of what we've been saying from the beginning, which is, right, almost every time Paul talks about this idea of generosity and giving, it's so frequently from the perspective of wanting something for us, not necessarily from us, right? It's the heart of the people uh, uh, who are giving the funds that is really uh, kind of of first importance to him most of the time when he's when he's uh, yeah. talking about this sort of thing. So it just totally reemphasizes that exact point. And in Psalms, so it's cool, like Psalm 112, it talks about, like a little bit more too, it talks about, Verse five: The good will come to those who are. So when when Paul quotes Psalm one twelve, he has the assumption that you actually know what Psalm one twelve is. The right. whole psalm, right? Right. They, just they would have the context. For they it. would have the whole context, right? right? Which is why if I'm going to yeah. do that, I can't, gotta, I got to go back and set. So the again, context. and again, this idea of righteousness and justice is actually in this in verse five because those two words fit together. And again, that idea in the Old Testament is this word shalom, which meant that. They're doing all of this for the good of others. That's literally what it meant, that I was going to live in such a way to make sure that the whole entire community is, is impacted. That's how they lived. So when you're calling us to be generous for the sake of others, like that's why Paul can teach this because that was the concept of Jewish people. It's a foreign concept to us because we're so individualistic. But in the psalm, 
righteousness, justice, compassion, they're all the same thing because they were seeking this ultimate shalom. But I love the end of Psalm 112 because it talks about the wicked. And it's like, the wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. So you have the parallel, right? Those who do, and then those who look and go, I don't want to do that. And they have the selfishness. That's why I loved how when you talked about righteousness, every time we give and are generous, I love how you said another one of our idols dies. We just, we're we're walking away one more time to try to be more like Jesus. I love that picture. And that's what this is, is because wicked people look and go, I don't want to give them that. I don't want to give these other people that. I don't give a building to people who, they don't deserve, that's my hard-earned money. I don't want to give my money across the world or whatever we're giving to. I want to keep it for me. CCJ, the arm ministry, the res, right? Yeah, I want to keep it for me. And this text is the the talking to the, you'll get what you want, but it has no enduring value. It will come to nothing, right? That's why I love, again, like you said, the whole Psalm, you should just go read it. Yeah. Sit in the little conviction and remember, again, in the context, like I said, of what Jewish people lived is so very different than ours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But again, the the next verse in that psalm, so if you go back, Psalm 112, verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their their righteousness endures forever. So again, it's pointing that their acts of giving produces a righteousness in them. And then it even goes a step further and says, their horn will be lifted high in honor. Like, because of their generosity, there is... There is um, a blessing, there there is an investment, there is a return on their generosity. Mm. And that is that their own horn gets lifted up in honor. So again, the point of this text here in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is Paul saying there is an investment. When you give, you're going to get something back. That's the whole point. And verse 9 is pointing to that. They scattered their gifts to the poor, and they got something back. They got a righteousness that endures forever. So, again, that was what verse 8 and 10 were both pointing to, was this investment that we get in return for our generous giving. And I didn't really feel like we had the time to go back and set the context of Psalm 112 uh, to pull that out of that text. Uh Especially since the other two verses are pointing to the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Let's jump into a couple of questions we got from Sunday. Let's start here. Luke sent this in. uh, It's a great question. He says, it seems that there's much more of a pattern of God's people giving willingly uh, for the advancement of his mission than I had previously realized. Just as as you referenced people giving to build the first tabernacle, uh, one that I noticed recently was First Chronicles 29, verses 8 and 9, uh, and giving to build the first temple. Uh, is there, uh, are there any other significant forms of giving that we can reference in this season of generosity to encourage us further? I think it's a great question. So let's talk maybe about a couple other stories uh, in Scripture or specific texts on giving that we can use uh, to be encouraged in this season. Yeah, I think of two right off the top of my head. I think about um, what what um, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Like there is this expectation that Jesus says that you can leverage your resources in such a way that it gets credited to your account in heaven. Like there is an opportunity to leverage resources. You've all we've all heard the old adage that uh, you've never heard, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. In other words, the the idea being you can't take it with you when you go. 
They've never seen a hearse towing a U-Haul. I've never heard that. Average. You haven't? Never heard that. In my I life. have. Yeah. It's okay. I'm, I'm glad you have. Yeah, okay. I for sure have. That's good. All right. You continue. don't, you never see a hearse towing a U-Haul because you can't take it with you when you go. You're dead, right? But what this scripture teaches is that you can send it ahead. Like there's a way to leverage our resources to whereby we actually get credit for it in heaven. The question is how? How do we leverage our resources to to store up treasure in heaven. How does that actually happen? And biblically, what we'd say is the way that that happens is you're investing those resources into eternal things, into things that are going to last, into the kingdom of God, into uh, the meeting of the needs of God's people. This is how we leverage resources, send those ahead. And so that's one way that God's calling us um, to give in a way that has an eternal impact. I think about one more. I think about the book of Acts um, in chapter four. So this is the very early church. Um, Many of you have heard the text uh, of chapter three, uh, where it says, look, they all got baptized. 3,000 were baptized that day. And then after that, it says, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking bread, and to prayer. And so we hear that, that text. And then just following that, it says this, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So you have this group of people who, again, there was no command: go sell all your land, go sell your your house, but they just willingly see investing these dollars through their local church, this gathering of believers. And they would sell it off and they'd go bring it to the apostles and say, do with it whatever you need to do to help whoever needs help. And they would do that. And then we get a specific example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So they would just out of their own generosity, sell off resources, bring the money, and lay it at the apostles' feet for the sake of whatever kingdom use that they had um, so that all of the people in the church had all of their needs met. So it was a hugely important piece of generosity that we see in the early church. Yeah, that was that was the one that came to mind. Well, sort of. Uh, Acts 2 was what came to mind immediately for me because it is such a marker um, generosity is a marker of the early church. And when yes. I say early church, I mean like the very day, right? Peter preaches the gospel to the crowd in Acts chapter two. Uh, they're cut to the heart. They say, Peter, what should we do? Repent and go be baptized, all of you, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then right at the bottom of that same chapter, Acts 2, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayer, to prayer, to fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders, uh, awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together, had everything in common. And then 45, man, they sold their possessions, uh, property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And it just blows me away that there was such an immediate transformation in the lives of those 3,000 plus people that came to know the grace of Jesus that they'd be willing because they had everything in common, because they had this, this grace of Jesus in common, they'd just be willing to start selling their things and, and lifting one another up. And, uh, even goes on to say they were, uh, they worshiped together with glad and sincere hearts, enjoying the favor of all believers. It's such a marker of the early church. I love looking at the examples throughout, uh, especially early on in the book of Acts, um, as an encouragement to us and out what our attitudes around generosity should be. Yeah, I always it amazes me of that story of both of them to lay it at the apostles' feet instead of taking it to the temple. Yeah, right. Like 
this is also why the religious of the religious elite did not love the Jesus followers. Yeah. They're breaking the rules. They it was, you didn't do that. You took your money, you took your offering, you put it in the temple, and they decided, and they went, nope. These men know Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They're the leaders of our church. Here you go. We trust you. Serve our people, yeah. right? Like that was probably like the I just imagine the religious leaders of the day like furious yeah. watching this happen. And it, but that's what the establishment of the local church started to look like. Yeah. Yeah. These leaders entrusted by God to do the work of ministry, and people said, "Okay, we'll follow. Let's go." Yeah. I, yeah. I just love that picture. Great. Yeah, that's really good. So, Luke, there's plenty more I'm sure we could find, uh, but those are a couple that, that stood out to me. Yeah. And I'll give you a couple more in response to the next question. Perfect. Let's do that. Uh, <laughs> next question is this. Jason mentioned that if everyone attending church services tithed, we would have more than enough for our goal of expanding the kingdom in the Quad City area. Uh, in more detail, how does tithing, this idea of giving 10%, um, fit into Excel in this this season? That's such a great question. Um, so I did say that. I did say that if everybody in our congregation tied, we would not be having to do any kind of special generosity initiative. We would have more than enough uh, to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish. Share your us. numbers. Share your numbers. I think it's helpful. Just, so just, look, just real briefly, the little <laughs> thing you shared, I think okay. it's super helpful. Well, I looked it up right before we came in, because I knew this question was on the list. So this, there's two numbers. You have the median household income in the Quad Cities, or in Prescott specifically. So they go by each city. So the median number in Prescott is 61000 a little over $61,000, which surprised me is actually higher than Flagstaff. So for those of you who have been around a while, we, we often think that Flagstaff's a little more ritzy or uppity than us. We actually have a higher median income than Flagstaff. Yeah. So 61. But what really blew me away is the average household income. So for those of you who are smart people, you recognize the difference between median and average. Or graduated high school. <laughs> 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 I don't know. But just in case you may want to explain it. So median, uh, well, what average does is it takes all of the numbers, all of the money, and divides it by the number of people. That's how you get average. When you have, but when you have an uh, outlier numbers, so numbers that may be higher on the top end, it drags up your average. So, the the average household income is over $80,000 okay which tells us that that there are more people on the top end of the spectrum as it relates to wealth in Prescott so it drags the number higher not everybody has but the, there are some who have a number that is significantly higher than the median yeah cuz the median is the middle yes. of the the data point. Right. So they look at the data point and go, about 50% of the people fit within right around here. It's literally in the middle. Yes. So average, like you said, the skew point would be much higher because That's right. the higher top end wealth, so, that's a lot. To yeah. Take it $20,000 more. Yeah. So let's just take the median though. Let's just take $60,000. Okay. So if we take $60,000 and say, We've got in our church about a thousand what we would call giving units. So my wife and I would be one giving unit. Josh, your wife and you would be one giving unit. You, when you give to the church, you give as the Garrett's household, right? It's not your wife giving and you giving. It's you give together. Same with you, uh, the Chrismers. So you're so we have three of them in our we have about a thousand of those in our church. Okay. So if we just base it off the median, not even the not even the average, just the median, and say sixty thousand dollars, that would mean that we as a church, or I'm sorry, we as individuals would be giving six thousand dollars a year to our church. Okay, so Josh, you can do the math for us. This is a if we took that six thousand dollars, and if a thousand people were doing that. 
that would put us at $6 million. Like our general giving to the church, no special, no nothing, just if we had a thousand people who were tithing off of the median income in our community, we would have a $6 million budget. That's almost double uh, what we had last year. If we had an extra, so again, this is a two-year initiative. That would put that number at $12 million. Our goal is 14.2 or 14.5. If we'd been tithing up to this point, we would have that in cash because our actual budgeted expenses are somewhere around two, two and a half. And so then, yes, the answer is absolutely. If everybody in our community, our church community were tithing, we would never, ever have to have a generosity campaign to accomplish anything. We'd have more resources than than we needed without any debt. So there, there you go. The more you know. So second part of the question, uh, we, a bunch, a bunch throughout the course of this series, we've talked about this idea of tithe because that seems to be the most common understanding of generosity yeah. in, in the church is yep. this idea that we tithe, which simply means 10th, right? A 10th yep. of your income, a 10th of, of what you gain, you give back. Yeah. Um, so where do we get the idea of a tithe and how do we reconcile a tithe versus you know, stretching ourselves to be generous and what the difference is? That's a great question. All right. So a couple of things we need to think about when it comes to the idea of a tithe. There are some Christians who look at the tithe and say it is an Old Testament law thing that has nothing to do with the New Testament. I'm not even going to argue with that. There's, I could, and I, well, maybe I will. There, it isn't true. It didn't come with the law. It came way before the law. Let me try to help reframe the tithe for you. When you think about the tithe, especially in in a in a in a world full of monarchs, the tithe was the king's portion. Okay? The tithe was the king's portion. In fact, here's where we get that biblically. All right? So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll flip there, 1 Samuel this is the a time in the history of Israel where they, sorry, I'm having a hard time finding Samuel here, where they were asking God to give them a king, right? So God had said, I will be your king. And they said, no, 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 we want a king like everybody around us. And God starts to warn them about why it is they don't want a king. And here's, Here's what he says. He says, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you you yourselves will become his slaves. So, what he says in this text is, you don't want a king because a king requires a tenth. And it's not just a a regular tenth. It is a tenth of the best. Like, that's the point. The king gets the, the first, the best, and a tenth of it. That's the picture. When you think of tithe, that's what you need to have in your mind. The first, the best, a tenth of it. A tenth of the first and the best. And God says, that's what a king gets. So, with that in mind, let me give you two texts in scriptures that specifically show us how this plays out. One of them is in Genesis chapter 14. You want know Abraham? Yeah. yeah. So, you have this guy Which named, is long before the law. This is hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years before the law came. You should do the math on that. <laughs> it is in Genesis chapter 14. You may remember Abraham had a had a nephew named Lot, and Lot gets himself in trouble a lot. And he goes into this place and he gets ransacked, and somebody comes and steals all of his stuff. And Abraham 
puts together an army and runs after the guy who had beat up his nephew Lot and took all of his stuff. Well, Abraham's army overtakes the guy who had conquered Lot, and Abraham uh, recoups all of the stuff that was stolen from Lot, and then some, because he took the stuff from the other guy who stole from his nephew. And as Abraham is, is leaving, okay, it says, starting in Genesis chapter 14, uh, starting at verse seven, 17. It says, after Abram returned from defeating uh, Kedlamar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Ismael Kezedek is a kind of a uh, interesting character in scripture because this is the, he, no, he's never spoken of before this. He just shows up on the scene and he doesn't ever show up again. Right, he this he comes into this moment, and Abraham recognizes that he is that this Melchizedek is greater than he is, and Melchizedek is called the King of Salem, or King of Peace. Salom means peace. Salem, Jerusalem, that's where that word comes from. It's the he's the King of Peace. Hebrews chapter 7 points to the fact that this Melchizedek is actually a forerunner, a picture of Jesus himself. In fact, some scholars believe that Melchizedek was actually a preformed, uh, a preformed, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where iteration of Jesus, where he shows up before creation. There's a couple of these in scripture. You remember one of them was when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace, and there was a fourth guy in there with him, and he glows. Yeah. It, they call the, those Christophanies. Yes, this, this where Jesus shows up into the story before, before uh, he comes down to earth at Bethlehem. So this is one of them. that They believe Jesus is is Melchizedek. He is a picture of Melchizedek. And he is the called the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He is the he's also called the priest of God most high. Who is it in scripture that is both king and priest? It's Jesus. He is our high priest. He is our king of kings. And what do you do when you come across the king? Well, the king's portion is a 10%. And so when Abraham meets Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses Abram, he gives him the king's portion, which was a 10% of everything that he had. Now, and again, as Josh had alluded to, this happened long before there was ever a law that required tithing. I, the law didn't come yeah. to wait later until Moses. We don't even Abraham. He's still just Abram. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, y'all, this is a long time before. Throw, throw back Abraham. As you as you're flipped your next one, so the king there, the other king, Ched Lamar. So I had an Old Testament professor. And the only thing I remember about Ched Lamar is Ched Lamar don't play. He was a, a vicious king who mm. did a lot of crazy, like you, you read through the, yeah. that's it. It's the only thing I remember. Ched Lamar don't play. So you were reading that and I heard my Old Testament professor, <laughs> Professor Battle, going, Chad Lamar don't play. Well, I got it. Okay, let's keep going. Like that's, that's all I remember from OT history. So a lot of people recognize, a lot of people know of the tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek. But I want to give you one more. And this is a much less known or much less talked about. It comes from Genesis chapter 28. And it's the story of Jacob. You remember Jacob and Esau, and Jacob stole his brother's birthright, and he's running from Esau because he thinks Esau's going to come and kill him. And Jake, so Jacob's on the run, and he has, 
a dream. He ends up going to Bethel and he lays down on a rock and he sees heaven open up and a stairway go up and they write a song about it called Stairway to Heaven. And so there's this whole moment where heaven and earth kind of open up and 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 Jacob sees these angels going up and down this ladder to heaven. And then he finally wakes up after, after wrestling with the Lord in this moment and in this place. Here's what it says. This is Genesis chapter 28, verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil, oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel because the city, uh, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord, which bothers me, it should say Yahweh right there. Then Yahweh will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And again, this is, this is a way that Jacob is declaring that this God named Yahweh is his God and king. Because he's going to give him a king's share of everything that he receives for the rest of his life. So when you think about a tenth, that's what you should think, that that it's a, a king's share, and that's what he deserves. So that's that's the tithe. And when we move into the New Testament, it is my opinion that for the follower of Jesus, that tithe ought to be the starting point, not the ending point. I think way too many of us are getting to the place where we think that's the finish line. And I think that's the starting line. Like the king's portion is that 10%. And then we give our offerings a free will over and above. That's what we saw in the wilderness was they were already essentially taxed a tithe in the Old Testament. But then there was these free will offerings that people would give to the Lord over and over and over again. So that's the picture. The 10% is the king's portion. And then we give our offerings out of our own generosity over and above that 10%. Yeah, that's really good. It's a really great explanation. Um, next are a couple of quick questions about... Um, I just kind of more practically about the integrity of our finances at Quad City and uh, and what that looks like. So here's the question. Um, what are the checks and balances in place to make sure any given money is properly used rather than embezzled or mismanaged? Yeah. Well, we have all sorts of procedures and policies in place. So uh, like this morning, the offering isn't counted until there are two people. And so it gets it's locked in a room and in a safe. And then every Monday, there are two people in the room at all times when the money is uh, taken out of the boxes that it is put in. And so that gives us the accountability there. We have... And with that, one of those is just a person who attends the church. A non-staff member. A non-staff right. member. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who's not has no leadership roles specifically. Yes. Um. So that happens every week. Um, the person who writes all of our checks has no authority to sign any checks. So when we think about uh, someone writing themselves a check and going to the bank, they don't. They, nobody has that accountability. The person who writes our checks then has to go and get signatures from someone. I think, Josh, you are a signer? Yes. And so Josh then becomes like a... A extra set of eyes to look to make sure that nothing funky is happening, that this would make sense. Oh, we're paying an electric bill or we're paying one of our missionaries. That makes sense. Uh, so we have a couple of people who are signers and the people who are signers cannot write checks. So they don't have that ability to do that. So there is that. And typically if we, were, if we request a check, 
we don't sign it. Yes, so if yes, I correct. request a check, even to a missionary, yeah. I'm usually not the one who signs said check. Yes. Notable to write that, Jason, you're not a signer on any of our accounts. No. I'm not a signer on any of our accounts. Again, we're making financial decisions. We're yeah. in usually in those rooms, in those meetings, yeah. uh, which means we're probably not the ones to be signing those checks, sure. right? There's, there just needs to be another, it's another layer of accountability we've added um, so I just wanted to make that point as you were going through. Yeah. So I've always, from the beginning of my time here, I've always said that what gets pastors in trouble <laughs> is getting your hands on the secretary or hands on the money. And so I've tried to stay off of both of those. So the, uh, the money piece, again, I don't have any, I'm not a signer on any accounts. I am, I'm not, um, I don't have access to any funds whatsoever. The only access I have is a church credit card, which again, from the beginning, I made sure I do not even have access to open my credit card. So my credit card always goes to somebody else on our staff who will look through my credit card to see where I am spending those dollars. I don't look at my credit card and reconcile it myself, not because I'm lazy, but because I want to make sure that there are another set of eyes that somebody else is going to reconcile and they're going to look at everything that I paid for, make sure that all the receipts are there and that it's not going to anything uh, inappropriate. So that's the way we've set that up from the beginning. Um, I would also say that we have a, uh, a person in our church who is our treasurer. And so he has access to whatever he needs to, to help make decisions uh, he was a president of a chain of banks, several banks. He was a bank president. So he understands what it means to look at uh, financials and to see discrepancies or to, to pick out where things are going funny. So that's his job. That's what he did. And so that's what he does for us. So he has access to all of our books uh, to be able to help us to figure out any abnormalities. So. Um, and then lastly, every year uh, we do, it's not quite an audit. There's a layer just below an audit. Uh, it's a legal term and I can't remember what it is, but. It's almost like an evaluation, so to a speak. review. Yeah. Review. A financial yeah. review kind of. Yeah. Evaluation. Yeah. So that happens with a, a lawyer up in Flagstaff. So once a year, all of our books um, get sent up to Flagstaff and they comb through all of it. Uh, just again, make sure that they're, that we are above board on everything and there's nothing out of place. So that happens every year as well. So, and anybody who has questions related to our budget, they can always get a copy of that. It's all for our people. Um, there's nothing that we're trying to hide. So we want to be as um, open-handed with that with that information as we can be. Yeah. The other big piece right on the how are we spending our money side of things um, that's probably important to note is just budgeting process, right? We're actually right around the corner from starting that process again, which is just the best time of year having to go through all those details. But it's so important to us because, uh, again, it's not as if we um, frivolously set aside large quantities of money to just spend it however it is we right. want to spend it. Like we're really, really diligent with our budgeting process to go uh, ministry by ministry, line by line, month by month, and budget only the funds necessary to accomplish whatever our goals are in those areas for those months um, throughout the course of the entire year. So everyone on our team that manages the budget, there's probably nine or 10 of us that have budget lines that we're uh, accountable for. Uh, you know, that that team sits down and they try to figure out, hey, what are we doing this year? What events do we have? What groups are we trying to launch? What acts of ministry are we moving uh, the ball down the field on this year? And then we budget accordingly. When they're done with that, that uh, it's a conversation with me. And then when it's a when that conversation's over and we feel really good about it, I have that conversation with Jason and with Francis. And then when we're done with that part of the conversation, we have it with our elders who ultimately have the final say on all of our budget uh, budgeted expenses. So we're making the case for uh again, we're never we're never going to intentionally spend money in a way that would dishonor the people giving it to us, giving it to God for the work of ministry. We're never going to work uh spend ministry funds in a way that dishonors God, right? We feel really really accountable for the way that we spend our money 
Um, and hopefully our process, which is just multifaceted and pretty diligent, speaks for for itself in that area. Yeah. So we just want to do a good job. We want to make sure we're spending money in a way that's going to have the greatest in kingdom impact uh, in the Quad Cities and beyond. And I just want to throw a little bit of emphasis on the last thing you said there. It always ends with our elders. Mm-hmm. So we have elders in our church who are not getting paid by the church. They have no f- fiscal benefit from the budgeting process, but they do feel a lot of fiscal responsibility. Yeah, They are the ones who are ultimately responsible for that budget. And so uh, our elders usually spend several meetings at the end of the year going through each line to make sure that it all makes sense. And so they, they are the ones who ultimately decide what the budget looks like for our church. So it is as you said, multifaceted. It is not something the staff does in a vacuum. Uh, it all is ultimately decided through our eldership. Yeah. yeah. If I'm tr- if I'm trying to make a case to spend money on something that just doesn't make sense, they will tell us. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. it's incredible. It's a it's a great yeah. process, uh, and I just love their hearts in the midst of it. Yeah, I was gonna say. So one of the things I know, Jason, you've said, and I use it with a couple of the guys that are on my team is. You know, and it's perfect because we can use your mom. Yeah. Because she is on a fixed income. Yeah. Like, put that person in your head and go, can I justify what I'm doing to Nana of what I've spent? And is she going to go, yeah, of course you would. And this really comes around when we talk through benevolence. Like, this, we have a process to try to help people. And I'm always like, at the end of the day, what you just did, would Nana be cool with it or whoever else? And I go, I think they would be. I think they would find honor in that and they would have loved what the decision we made. But like to make it like that it is someone who is dropping their two coins in, this is all they got. And they've trusted us to go do the work of ministry. And we want to honor people, right? We want to make sure that at any moment, if somebody asks me, I can go, yeah, this is why we did what we did. And we have some reasoning behind it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um. Okay, last question here. Can I pause for one yeah, second? Yeah, yeah, of course. The when it comes to the 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 giving uh, to the Excel campaign, here's here's what we can tell you. We've already told you where this money's going, so people oh, don't sure. have to wonder. Like, True. there are four initiatives that we are going to accomplish with these dollars over the next two years. So again, if you have your book, then you already know. It is it is not a secret. We're not hiding anything. These four initiatives, the one being uh, the ministry that we've been doing here for the last 15 years, we want to have those ministries all continue and to grow over the next two years. Uh, the uh, the generosity of giving a million dollars away to our ministry partners and maybe even leveraging some new projects through our outreach ministry. We're going to do a million dollars for that. We're going to uh, seek to build our balcony here in uh, the Prescott campus and then take everything else, every other dollar that's given, we're going to push all of that over and start to do some construction on our Prescott Valley campus. So that's there's no question about where the money's going. That's where the money's going. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good. Last question here is, <laughs> what is Advanced Commitment Night? Why are we having it at Finley Toyota Center? Who should come? Who shouldn't come? And is there going to be, uh, is it just going to be another version of our vision night that I already went to? So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Advanced Commitment Night. Man, uh, I'm going to go in reverse order, I think, because I think it's most helpful. It is not just another vision night. It's a night of celebration, right? That's kind of what we've been saying from the very beginning. Advanced Commitment Night um, is an evening where we as one church that uh, worship worships in two locations over five services, plus anyone who joins online that's here in town or anywhere close to us, we get to take an opportunity for all of us to be in one place at one time, which, gosh, Jason, in your time here, how many times has that happened? Uh Two, I yeah, can think in fifteen years. Yeah. So it's yeah. just not a not an opportunity we have very often um, for our entire church to worship together in one place at one time. So we're excited about that. That's you know one of the driving focuses behind this night, and what we're celebrating is this opportunity to bring God our first fruits to make a commitment to the Excel uh, initiative. This thing that we've been asking all of our people to be. Uh, praying through and seeking discernment on, hey, what is God calling me to do in the area of generosity? 
Uh, how is he stretching me as a disciple? It's all of this stuff we've been talking about for the last four or five weeks. This is your first opportunity to make that uh, commitment at Advanced Commitment Night. So uh, again, why are we having it at Finley Toyota? Because the Prescott campus isn't big enough. I mean, it's just as simple as that. The the side benefit to, you know, we want to celebrate in Prescott Valley. We see a huge future for our church to make more and better disciples in the town of Prescott Valley. And we want to have a moment of celebration and worship and prayer uh, over that community, in that community. Uh, who should come? Everyone. I think everyone should come. Um, and uh, again, I, I just hope that it is an encouraging night of celebration to where we can be together, uh, worshiping our creator uh, and giving him our first fruits when it comes to this initiative. Who shouldn't come? That's an interesting question. You have an answer for that one? Um, Jason. <laughs> Got funny. him. Got him. Uh the really grumpy person who is anti anything to do with this initiative would just, it would be more helpful if they just stayed home. It'd be a little bit of a buzzkill. Yeah. We don't, we don't need any divisiveness as a part of this. That's fair. Yeah. No, I honestly though, man, I'm looking Because even to this. if you're not ready. Yeah. You, no, no, no. That's different. Right. Someone who's questioning and wondering yeah. and struggling and questions, bring them. Yeah. That is because our hope hopefully would be that's that right. the spirit of God, and because again, this is ultimately always between what you that's right. it's you and the Lord, yeah. right? Yeah, we yeah, have, absolutely. Yeah, like I, I do think again, we got to take some of the privacy stuff out, right? Like I think I was just thinking through how we do our finances; it's so open, much more than maybe other places. I think personally, if we can just get to some accountability in our financial walks, that we have people to go. That seems like a very unwise decision, Josh. You shouldn't have bought that. you're going to hurt yourself long term you know what i mean like just people in our life and so um this is an opportunity for all of us to kind of again we're not going to see what's on each other's card but we are going to see like oh they're going they're going too. yeah i'm not going at this alone i'm going with you know six seven hundred eight hundred people together like this is a collective movement of the people of god yeah and so just being in that room even if you're unsure i think witnessing that may help your heart to be stirred in such a way and convicted in such a way because that's kind of how the Holy Spirit works. For sure. Yeah, if there's one thing we know about this next season, if we know about, you know, uh, if there's one thing we know about taking ground for the kingdom, like it's not easy. (laughs) It's not an easy thing to do and we're all going to feel, and when I say we all, I don't mean like our staff. I mean like our church is going to feel the tension of what it takes to take actively take ground for the kingdom. So for me, this is a moment of encouragement that we're in this together. Like all, and that's why it's so important, I think, that we're all there and that, you know, it's one place, one time, all of these people in different campuses and services and that sort of thing, because it should be really encouraging to us. Like we should be able to stand in that room and look around and see six, seven, eight hundred people that are just like us that just want to make more and better disciples in our area. So um, I think the encouragement that comes from, hey, we know this is going to be really hard, but we are in this together, uh, is the whole spirit behind Advanced Commitment Night. So if you got a group and you're a group leader who listens to the podcast, make sure you're going, hey, group, let's go together. Let's go yeah. eat. Let's go eat yep. before and then let's go to the let's go to this event. There is no food. There's there is some light refreshments after but there's no food at this event so you want to eat beforehand so you're not peckish um (laughs) yeah if you meet on thursday night as a group man i just ask you to push pause on that and not meet and come because we think the value of being together in this in our larger body of community will be more impactful for you in years to come so yeah again i know a lot of group leaders are listening to this and so you've heard me already tell you how big a deal this is but just again i want to just reiterate Man, encourage your people who are on the fence, help lead in this way to go, hey, just go. Just see what God may do yep. with you and experience yep. what maybe we haven't experienced. And, you know, very rarely have people been in a room that big with that many believers worshiping. Yep. Yeah. Your, your church context, you know, it's all dependent on that. It's a powerful thing. It is. So there's going to be a lot of worship and moments of, yeah. of just reflection and celebration. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's yeah. just going to be a cool event. I think you'll walk away blessed for going even if you're still not yet ready to make your commitment yeah so 
Yeah, and uh, there's going to be a bunch of cool special elements and all your friends are going to be talking about them and you're going to feel like you really missed out on something if you didn't go. So Agreed. Guilt you that way. And I know so some of you FOMO. can't. No, of course. Because of you course. got stuff. and like, This is not like, there's no recording of it. There's no, no yeah. yeah. So, sorry if you do miss. <laughs> but don't. Don't be <laughs> but that don't guy. But don't miss. Don't be that guy. Rearrange some things. We'll see sure. you there. We'll see you there, <laughs> definitely. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Well, that is a wrap on another episode of the Becoming Better podcast. We're so glad that you joined us for this time today. Again, I can't stress enough how much we would love to see you at Advanced Commitment Night this Thursday, September 14th, 545 at the Finley Toyota Center in Prescott Valley. We hope to see you all there. But until then, we hope this conversation was fruitful in your walk and obedience to Jesus and can't wait to see you again real soon.